Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mason Brown. I am the uh, director of student ministries here at Rio, uh, which essentially means that I am one of two guys on staff who eats an incredibly unhealthy amount of pizza and plays way too much dodgeball throughout any given week. Um, But in all seriousness, it is a joy to be able to be here with you this morning. Uh, As many of you might know, uh, my wife and I, we are expecting our first child in August. Uh, Yes, you can clap. Um, Which we are incredibly excited for. Uh, Not so much for the three months of darkness, as someone put it, since I guess we'll be sleep-deprived for a couple of months. Um, But anyways, as we've been anticipating the arrival of our son, uh, we've been trying to get everything together. And so we've purchased the crib, we've kind of laid out where everything is going to go, and recently uh, I've been kind of assigned to figure out which stroller we're going to buy. Uh, Which at first, I was like, oh, that's easy. I mean, how hard could that be? (laughs) Exactly. I thought there was like only going to be like four or five different strollers that you can choose from. And so you just purchase the one, right, that's priced well and has good reviews. It can't be that difficult. But oh no, I was horribly wrong. After staring at my computer screen for hours on end, visiting site after site, at one point, I was so far deep into parenting websites, which, by the way, is not a place that I want to go back to ever again. It's like an endless black hole. It just never ends. Um, That I started to realize that there are hundreds of different strollers that you can choose from. And just to make matters worse, depending on what stroller you buy, You then have to make sure that it's compatible with the car seat that you're going to get, which of course just throws more options into the mix. And so at this point, I'm just overwhelmed. I wish we lived in an age where there is just one option that you could choose from, and that is it. But we don't. We live in a world where the options are endless. And it's not just in the stroller industry. But there are a plethora of different options that you can choose from when it comes to what doctor you go to, to what restaurant, restaurant you eat at, to even what type of cereal you buy. The options are endless. And what's interesting to me is that no matter what it may be, they are all wanting one thing. And that is your heart. They want your allegiance. And the thing is, we give it to them. Think about it for a second. And General Mills wants to turn all of us into a Cinnamon Toast Crunch people, whatever the type of cereal it is that you like to eat, so that when you go to the grocery store, you will intentionally walk by the other 90 different boxes of cereal on the shelf, which, by the way, I did count, um, and you will immediately go straight towards that one that you like. Think about how we talk about sports. We, we say things like, we won, or, um, oh, we'll, we'll get them next year. And what's interesting is the word we, right? Because it's not like we are the ones who are suiting up and going out in the field. At least I'm not. I mean, I haven't grown since I was in eighth grade. Um, but it's interesting that we use the word we, because in doing so, it shows that we have given ourselves 
our allegiance to something to such a degree that we now identify ourselves with it. We're a part of it. We are cinnamon toast crunch people. We are dolphin fans. The point being and that there are things within our lives that are clamoring for our hearts. And ultimately, they're clamoring for our allegiance so that we would ignore all of the other options that we have and that we would give ourselves to just one option. And this morning, as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus, we come into this climactic moment where God reveals His law, the Ten Commandments, to the people of Israel, who had just come out of where? Egypt, where there are hundreds of different gods, and each god promised those who worshipped it some sense of life or security or sense of hope, and so they could have easily given their hearts, their allegiance, to any one of those gods. But here, this morning, as we look at the first commandment, we're going to see that God is calling us, His people, and to give our allegiance solely to Him, that in a world that has an endless amount of options and is constantly competing for your heart, this commandment is demanding that all of your heart be given to the Lord. But as you hear that, you might be asking yourself the question, well, well why? Why should we give our hearts, our allegiance unto the Lord? And the reason why, as we'll see this morning, is because of who He is and what He has done for us. But then secondly, if that is true, if God is truly deserving of our hearts and our allegiance because of who He is and what He has done for us, the next question is, well, how? How do we practically do that? How do we surrender our hearts before the Lord and give Him our allegiance? And so that is what we're going to be talking about this morning, what we're going to be working our way through this morning. Uh, But before we do... I want to briefly provide some context surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the reason why is because for many of us, including myself, have probably thought at one point or another that the Ten Commandments are essentially laws that God has given to us and to simply steal our ability to have any fun within this life whatsoever. Or maybe for some of you, you think that the sole purpose of the law is to provide some arbitrary standard that you must reach so that you can somehow earn God's love. Or maybe you think that they're simply there just to make you feel guilty about yourself. And so this morning, before we even look at the first commandment, let's set the stage so that we can better understand the purpose and the intent behind the Ten Commandments. And so if you've been here with us, you'll hopefully remember that the people of God had been enslaved in the land of Egypt, this land of slavery and death, for 430 years. Imagine that for a second. I know it's hard to, but try to imagine that for a second. Slavery was the only thing that these people knew. They were in bondage, and there was nothing that they could do about it until... And God sent a deliverer named Moses who led the people of Israel not just out of the land of Egypt, but out of the land of slavery and death. He delivered those who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb from their bondage as he led them through the Red Sea. And now, after being delivered from this bondage, they are now on their way to the promised land, a place of abundance and life. 
But before they get there, God brings them to Mount Sinai, which as we saw last week is where God made a covenant with them. And he promised them that on the third day he'd return and that he would reveal to them the laws of this covenant. And so this is the context in which the Ten Commandments are given to his people. After experiencing this newfound freedom, God brings them to Mount Sinai, and on the third day, he reveals to them his law. And so starting in Exodus 20, uh, in verse 1, it says this, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I love that, because right away, God comes to them, and he distinguishes himself from all of the other gods that Israel could have given their hearts to. Notice, he starts with the words, I am, which if you recall, is the name that God gives to Moses, so that when the people ask, who is able to free us from this life of slavery and provide to us a new identity? When they look at how powerful the Egyptians are and ask, who is powerful enough to free us, to deliver us from this bondage? Moses, he was to respond with the Lord's covenantal name, I am. That is what his people knew him by. And so here, the Lord says, look, just so that there is no confusion, it was me. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if you've been here with us, you've probably heard it said time and time again that the Exodus is not just a story about God delivering his people out of the land of Egypt, this land of slavery and death, but ultimately it's a foreshadowing of what God will do for his people through the true and greater Moses, which is Christ, who at the cross freed us not from a foreign power, but from our sin. Christ took our sin and the judgment that we deserve upon himself so that we would not have to bear it. He died in our place and he rose from the grave, defeating both sin and death, so that we, who like the Israelites, take shelter under the blood of the Lamb, who place our faith in him, will be delivered from our bondage to sin and from death itself, so that we can have a relationship with our Father in heaven, and receive the gift of eternal life. Guys, this is what Christ has done for us. He's freed us from our bondage. He's, he's leading us to the promised land, a place of abundance and life. And ultimately, this is what makes him deserving of our hearts and our allegiance. Just like the Israelites, he's the one who has heard our cry. And he has sent a redeemer to save us, to free us from our bondage, and to deliver us unto life, life abundance, solely out of his love and grace for us. And notice too, within these first two verses, that God gives the people of Israel the law in light of what he's already done for them. He doesn't say, I am the Lord who, if you keep all of these commandments, I might consider being your God. And he doesn't say, if you keep all of these commandments, I might deliver you. But instead he says, look, I am the Lord, your God, meaning you're already mine. You're already loved. You're already adopted as children into my family. For I've proven that to you. Because it's not that I'm going to eventually deliver you, but I already have. 
I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so in light of that deliverance, and in light of this newfound freedom that you now have, I am now going to give you my law. And so Israel's motivation, as well as our motivation to be obedient to God's law, is not so that we can somehow earn God's love by doing enough good things, but it's rooted in our redemption. It's rooted in what Christ has already done for us. And so that is the why. That is why we are to give him our hearts and our entire allegiance, because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. But the next question is, well, well, how? How do we practically do that? In what areas do we give him our hearts and our allegiance? Well, if we continue on, we come to the first commandment where the Lord says, in light of your deliverance, you shall have no other gods before me. And as you hear that, you immediately might be asking some questions like, what is a god? Because let's be honest, for most of us, when we hear that, we begin to conjure up images in our minds of ancient people bowing down and worshiping some type of statue or carving, which is true if you're from the 90s or if you've ever seen the TV show, Hey Arnold. I was a Nickelodeon freak, but Hey Arnold was a show that was on there all the time. Helga, who is one of the main characters, at one point builds this secret statue Uh, in her closet, which is comprised of the most random of things like a football, uh, bubblegum, Q-tips. I mean, it's it's weird. There's other things, but it's weird and most definitely not sanitary. Um, But anyways, she constructs this statue that's supposed to emulate Arnold, which is the boy that she likes. And she essentially bows down and worships it, hoping that one day the real Arnold will notice her. And so she continually kind of worships this statue, hoping that one day the real Arnold will love her and actually notice her. And so in some sense, that is what a God can be. It can literally be a statue that one might bow down and worship. However, a more precise definition, especially for our context, of what a little G God is, is simply anything within our life that competes with the living and true God. A little g God is anything within your heart, within your life, that you love, trust, adore, or obey more than God himself. And so let me just give you a list of what some of those things might be. Money, which let's just be frank. We value it and we trust it more than we value God himself. And so we work, 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 trying to make as much of it as we can so that we can feel more secure and comfortable. We even make a God out of ourselves. We believe that life should revolve around us and that people should acquiesce to our timing and to our scheduling of things. Relationships. We look to others so that we can be validated and approved by them that we're loved and accepted and that people do in fact care for us. And of course, we've created sex into a little G God. We've elevated it to such a degree that it permeates every aspect of our culture, to the lyrics of the songs that we listen to, to TV ads, to how rampant and accessible uh, pornography has has become. And it's all because 
We believe the lie that will actually be able to satisfy our heart and fill that void that we have within our life. And so those are just some of the things that we have made into little g-gods. However, here, within the text, the living and true God, the one who has delivered you, has freed you from your bondage, comes to you and says, look, in light of what I've already done for you, you shall have no other gods before me. But as you hear that, your next question that you might be asking is, well, what does that even mean? Like, can I have other little G gods, other things that I worship, as long as they're behind you? Can I hide these other gods that I hold dear and that I look to for life and for joy in the deepest caverns of my heart and only look to them when I'm truly an emergency? Is God saying that I can have other gods and worship them as long as he's number one? Is that what God is saying within this verse? And the answer is no. The phrase before me, literally in the Hebrew, it means before my face or in my presence. And so when you consider that God's presence is everywhere, it changes things. It changes the context of this verse as the psalmist even says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there as well. And so here, God is saying, look, you, you shall have no other gods before me, period. Julian Barnes, who's a secular author, by the way, uh, was reflecting upon religion in, in general, uh, and he makes a very insightful statement. And he says this. He says, there seems a little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything, which is very perceptive of him. Because see, here's the thing. If God is God, and if Christ has freed you from your sins, we owe him our hearts. We owe him our entire allegiance. Every sphere of our life ought to be stained by his word. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even comes to us and says, look, if you have faith in Christ, not only did he redeem you from your bondage to sin and from death itself, but he also purchased you by the blood of his son. He says this, he says, for you are bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. Paul is making the connection that since Christ has gone to such great lengths to save you from your sin, for he says that you've been bought with a price. You therefore are called to glorify God in your body, meaning every aspect of who you are. And so God doesn't just want your heart on Sundays. He doesn't just want 80% of your heart throughout the remainder of your week. But he wants you in light of what he's already done for you, to worship and serve him and him alone as you allow his word to infiltrate and transform every aspect of your life. And so that is the how. That is how we practically give him our hearts and our allegiance by simply worshiping him and him alone as we surrender ourselves before him and his word. And so before we continue on, I encourage you to just ask yourself, be honest with yourself Ask yourself the question, and what part of your life is not stained by him and by his word? What part of your life have you withheld from him and have constructed in such a way 
that that thing has become what you worship and what your life revolves around instead of it being the Lord. And as you think through that, and as you work through that, you might just be sitting there thinking, well, well, Mason, why? Why does God even give us this command in the first place? And the reason why, or the first reason why, as we've already seen, is that he's the only one who is deserving of our hearts and our allegiance. He's the one who has freed us from our bondage, and he's delivered us out of this land of slavery and death. And he's delivered us unto life, life abundance. And because of that, we can either take him at his word and solely worship him, or we can spend the rest of our lives worshiping the other gods that we have constructed and fabricated as we ultimately find out just how utterly unworthy anyone or anything else is of the worship of our lives. But then secondly, and I hope you see this, and God gives us this command because in Christ, He's already set us free from our bondage. And He wants us to stay that way. You see, the truth is, there is no such thing as a God who comes along and says, I'm just here to participate in your life, to make your life easier, to facilitate your goals and your dreams and your ambitions. And even though I know that I'm the God, I'm here to serve and bow to you. That is simply not the case. Every God that we bow down to, that we worship, demands a sacrifice. Think about it for a moment. The God of money, it costs you your friendships, your marriage, time with your children, and even your own health as you constantly work so that you can try to feel more secure and comfortable. The God of self, it robs you of the very purpose which, with which you were created, which is to love God and to love others. The God of sex, it turns you into a liar. It demands your integrity. It tramples on your dignity. And it robs you of your wholeness. If you've ever talked to someone or walked with someone through a battle of a sexual addiction, you then know that when you're in it, it empties your soul. It becomes this endless quest for love that demands your allegiance and for you to sacrifice everything that you hold dear, which is a form of slavery. That is death. And that is what this first command is designed to free you from. God has given us his law to prevent us from going back to the land of slavery and death. And we're going to see that time and time again as we continue to work our way through the Ten Commandments. But the question that we're kind of left with this morning is, well, what do we do? Where does that leave us? Because let's just be honest, we all take things, including myself, and whether it be our money, power, sex, success, you name it, we all take things and we create them into ultimate things, into things that become way more important to us than God, into things that absorb all of our hearts and our imagination. And ultimately, we take these things and we sacrifice and we invest everything that we have into building these things up because we believe that if we do so, that if we reach a certain level or status that will actually be satisfied, that will actually be happy or receive a sense of value or worth. And we're all guilty of it. And Paul in, in, in Romans 1 even says, look, that we have, we have blatantly chose to look to the things of this earth, 
to try to fill that void that we have within our life instead of looking to the Lord. And so what do we do? Well, thankfully, God has heard our cry, and he doesn't leave us stranded in our bondage. He's provided a deliverer who's not only able to free us from our bondage to sin and our continual pursuit of chasing after these counterfeit gods that only leave us more broken and empty than before, but ultimately, he's provided us himself. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, which the well was a symbol of all the different gods, all the different things that she worshipped and looked to for life and for joy, for her sense of value and worth within this life. And Jesus says this to her. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, he is pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. In other words, Jesus says, look, everything within this life is a cheap, temporal replica of the only thing that I can truly give. It's not found in the God of money. It's not found in the God of sex, the God of self, you name it. But instead, it's found in me. I'm the only one who can truly satisfy your heart. I'm the only one who can quench your thirst, or you can say fill that void that you have within your life. Not only eternally, for I've died so that you can live. But in this very moment as well. And Blaise Pascal, he was a famous mathematician, and he understood this very point, and he said, look, in regards to these counterfeit gods, these little g-gods that many of us have elevated above the Lord and that we have given our hearts our allegiance to, he says this, he says, they are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. What Pascal recognized is that our hearts will always be searching, seeking, and longing for that abyss within our heart to be filled until God is made preeminent, until we look to him and to him alone to fill that void, that abyss that we have within our life. And so friends, will we put aside all of our other allegiances? Would we repent of our sins? Would we surrender not just those areas that we're comfortable with, but every aspect of who we are as we draw near to the Lord, knowing that he has come to not only deliver us from our bondage to sin and from death itself, but he's ultimately given us himself to provide to us life, not only eternally, but in this very moment as well. And so as we close, I want to leave you with two questions. And the first and most importantly, in a world that has an endless amount of options and is constantly competing for your heart, and do you believe that the Lord is the only one who is truly deserving and truly worthy of your heart and your allegiance because of who he is and what he has done for you? Do you believe that Christ has come to free you from your bondage to sin and ultimately from death itself by you simply placing your faith in him, that it's only by his death and burial and resurrection that you are saved? Do you believe that? And if not, I encourage you. At the end of each service, we have a prayer team that meets up here, and they would love, yes, to pray for you, but maybe even more importantly, just to talk to you, to talk about the doubts, the questions 
that you may have in regards to who Christ is and what he's done for you. And so I encourage you, if that is you, come and, come and take advantage of that. But then secondly, if you say, look, I, I believe that the Lord is worthy of my heart and my allegiance because of who he is and what he has done for me. Are there then other little g gods that you have elevated above the Lord? Are there other things within your life that you look to for life and for joy instead of the Lord? And if so, would you then take those things and surrender them before the Lord as you allow his word to color and stain not just certain parts of your life, but every aspect of who you are? Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning truly grateful for who you are that you have redeemed us, that you have delivered us out of this land of slavery and death, and that you are leading us into the promised land solely out of the love and grace that you have for us. And God, we pray that in light of what you have done, in light of your deliverance for us, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to turn from the things that we so often will believe, that we so often believe will give us life. Would you help us to turn for those things that we cling to, And would we surrender them before you, knowing that you are truly the only one who can fill that void that we have within our life. And so, Father, we pray and we thank you um, that you have come to satisfy our hearts, not only eternally, for you've died so that we can live, but even in this very moment as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.